This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. Listen to what inspired the storyline, how their covers and titles were chosen, their personal connection to the story, and other fascinating tidbits about the authors themselves. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have any comments about the podcast or feedback for me, I can be reached at Cindy H. Burnett at att.net. Natalie Jenner is the international best-selling author of The Jane Austen Society, a fictional telling of the start of the society in the 1940s in the village of Chawton, England, where Austen once lived. Natalie was born in England and emigrated to Canada as a young child. She obtained her BA and her LLB from the University of Toronto, and in addition to a brief career as a corporate lawyer, worked as a recruiter, career coach, and consultant to leading law firms in Canada for over 20 years. Most recently, Natalie founded the independent bookstore Archetype Books in Oakville, Ontario, where she lives with her family and two rescue dogs. I absolutely loved the Jane Austen Society and selected it as a June Buzz Reads pick for my monthly column for the Buzz magazines, and it will be one of my top 10 reads for 2020. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed interviewing Natalie. Welcome, Natalie. The Jane Austen Society is one of my favorite reads this year, and I'm really excited to talk with you about it. Wow, Cindy, thank you so much. I mean, I'm thrilled that you enjoyed the book, and I, I love talking about Jane Austen and about my story and my character. So thanks so much for having me on today. Of course. Well, why don't we start by you talking a little bit about the book. Tell me about the Jane Austen Society. The Jane Austen Society is a very fictional account of a group of villagers in the real village where Jane Austen lived for the last 10 years of her life. And these characters have come together at the tail end of World War II. They're all coming out of trauma and grief and loss of some kind, some of them from both world wars. And the Jane Austen cottage is in their midst. And up until this point in history, in real life as well, no one had thought aggressively of trying to save it. And that did end up happening with the start of the real Jane Austen Society in May of 1940. It took them about seven years or so before they got enough money together to open it up as a museum. But what I wanted to do was tell a variant of that story through my imaginative lens and make up eight very different people and explore not just Jane Austen and her cottage, but more importantly, engaging again with life after grief and loss, bonding with people over shared common interests, no matter how different you are, and bonding over love of books, all things that are very important to me. It's a book about friendship and community, and it's a book about trying to find hope even in really difficult times. And it's historical fiction, but it's done with a somewhat different touch, I think, than maybe what people are expecting. Because I don't flatter myself as a historical fiction writer, I'm very character driven. So it's very much about these eight very different people. I didn't realize that the Jane Austen Society had started around 1940 in the beginning of saving her home and everything. That's interesting that you sort of paralleled it, but then told your own story. Yeah. In fact, I didn't realize when I was writing the book until about a year ago that the actual Jane Austen Society started in May of 1940. So exactly 80 years before my release month, which was a month that was picked by my publisher with no mindfulness of that. So it felt very karmic. Yeah. What are the odds? Yeah. How did you learn about the subject matter for the book? And then how did you become interested enough in it to want to write about it? 
what's really interesting, I've always been a lifelong fan of Jane Austen, and I'll go into that more later. But for me, I had always been aware of the museum and society. My first trip to the museum took place 30 years ago as a backpacking undergrad in England, where I was born. I would go back in the summers. And I remember going to see the museum before the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice wet shirt phenomenon had started, which increased visits to the Jane Austen House Museum by about 250%, I'm told. When I went to see it, it was just a much more smaller enterprise. And I was always aware of it. I made an effort to read lots of different books over the years about fandom around Jane Austen, because as my favorite author, I've always been very interested in why. Why is it Jane Austen? Why can I not get enough of her? Why do I turn to her in difficult times in my life? Why do I reread those books every few years? I really wanted to, as I grew older and saw her resonate for me at different times in my life, I wanted to understand the magic and how she was doing it. And then when I hit a difficult time in life with a very devastating health diagnosis for my husband, who is right now outliving some statistics with his incurable lung disease. It's a pretty, um, it's a terminal incurable disease called IPF. And we spent a year just working through that and trying to figure out what was going on. And I was turning to Jane Austen so much. And at the end of that very difficult, quiet year, I felt like writing again for the first time in 10 years. I had tried very, very hard for many years when I was younger and had five manuscripts locked away in a drawer. But this time, I think the muscle that I had developed, Cindy, over time, but also the muse, the inspiration of wanting to myself keep engaged with life, even when I didn't think I was up to much besides watching Cheers and Fraser on an internal loop. You know? And I was also reading a lot about Jane Austen, and this book was a way to explore how to stay engaged and having a passion. And that's how it all came about. I'm always amazed how frequently another Jane Austen book will come out. They're all very different in different perspectives, either continuing one of her stories or a retrospective or your book talking about preserving her memory and the society. I just think it's fabulous. She definitely has a lasting power that few authors have. She does. She has legs. She's very much, I think, a writer that was of her time, but her focus, again, being on character and being on the different aspects of human nature and how we're all different, but we're also all the same. I think the more universal themes in her works were what drove her and an importance of community as well. And I think that because of that, she wasn't too pinned down when she wrote by exploring socioeconomic, historical, political, and other types of themes. And I think that enables us years and centuries later now, 200 years later, to kind of make a real imaginative leap into her pages and really engage with the characters and what they're going through in a way that resonates with us and is, I think, somewhat unique. I put her up there with Shakespeare in terms of the universality of her themes and the freshness and accessibility of her lens into human nature. I agree completely. And the other thing that I was thinking about as I read your book was that I had read it initially in the spring before coronavirus began, Mm. and I reread it before we're talking today. And it really has a lot of themes that, that help us deal with the pandemic, I think. I absolutely agree. I mean, I think there's a reason I turned to her in difficult times. I think that besides allowing us to do good imaginative work and see ourselves in our pages and see our neighbors and our friends, I think she's just so in command when she writes. I call her the master of masters. If Henry James is the master, she's the master of masters. She's in such control with her prose and with her plot and with her characters. And I think when you read her, you feel a calmness. I think both the 
cleanness of her prose and its accessibility 200 years later to us, it doesn't sound archaic at all. There may be some vocabulary we don't recognize, but the flow of her prose is so highly logical. I think she appeals to a lot of lawyers for that reason. And a lot of lawyers have come to me through this process. I'm a former lawyer myself. I think you might be too, Cindy. Is that right? I am. <laughs> That's yeah. what I was just going to say. I am no, too. There's <laughs> something. there's something very logical about her prose that just continues to challenge people, I think, intellectually, it always makes sense. So I think when you read her, you're in a position of feeling this person knows what they're doing, and it's all going to somehow turn out okay. And I think the way she built her plots to those, what we consider to be romantic or happy endings, but what they really are is cathartic explorations of how to stay true to yourself, despite the parental and societal and other types of expectations on you, and how in staying true to yourself, you can find happiness. And I think that's what she's really about. And I think there's something very inspiring and hopeful about that. I also think as I've read her books over time, and my two favorites are Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion. But Me as too. I've, oh, really? No, <laughs> I just love them both so much. And I have read them and reread them and reread them. But over time, as I've read several of their other stories again, I identify at a different age with different mm. characters. And I think I understand Emma better as I've gotten older. Yes. And what I loved about your book was some of your different characters had favorites from their different stories based on their own personalities and who resonated with them. And it was really fun to read that and hear why they liked Emma or Lizzie Bennett or whoever it was that they identified with. It's funny because I too have grown to appreciate Emma more as a now a parent of a daughter of marriageable age. It was about exactly <laughs> Emma's age, almost 20, um, 19, but Emma I think is 21. But in going through the stages of life, I've become both more open-minded, but also more recognizing of how life experiences, who raises us, if it's a hypochondriacal Mr. Woodhouse, right? Or if Miss Bates and Emma is alone with her mother, who's hard of hearing all day, and she's nattering along. As I've gotten older, I have increased, I hope, my well of empathy and sympathy for these characters. And I wanted to reflect that in my own book. I wanted to interrogate why certain characters resonate with me, why they sometimes resonate with others more. And the book was just a great vehicle to take my own characters and have them explore the very things I was interested in. I think Cindy in the end, I wanted to create my own little society at a difficult time in life because I wasn't quite ready after a year of reading Jane Austen and reading about her. I wasn't quite ready to leave her world. I'm not sure I'm ever quite ready to leave yeah. her world, Natalie. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I'll finish reading a book, one of them, and I'll be like, okay, I guess I need to move on to another one. But that's what's fun about the Jane Austen Society is that I'm still reading about Jane Austen, but it's, it's a different story and incorporates a lot of her works. I was very lucky in the way I came to this book because I did unintentional research for a year. But when I sat down to write, I just wanted to, like I said, kind of create a bunch of people kind of banging up against each other and, and loving Jane Austen and talking about her, but also just dealing with other issues, the kind of issues I was dealing with. For example, when you mentioned the pandemic earlier, one of the things I think everyone's going through and what I went through when my husband was told he might only have a few years left of life, which again, he is outliving so far. But one of the things I think that you start to feel is what's called anticipatory grief. And that is the loss of the future you thought you were going to have. And I wanted to explore through these characters, how do you stay hopeful you know, and mindful about that? So it is very interesting to me that my book was an outlet for me, a form of, I guess, literary therapy, and has 
I think really helped me get through this difficult time. So like you said, it's maybe a good pandemic read, but more importantly, the people that get back to me on it and send me emails have told me it's helped through, through myriads of experiences. And as an author, that's the absolute most rewarding aspect is the connection with readers. I absolutely agree. And that's wonderful that your husband is doing well. And I'm sure that's really hard for all of you trying to deal with that. I think it's one of those things that you do go through some sort of psychological process of grieving and you learn to live more in the moment. You have to. And I think that with my characters in my book, what I wanted to explore was when you're really given a lot on the plate of life, like a lot of bad stuff, and you just really don't know how to make something positive from it. I learned to start small. And my family was, we were taking bucket list trips and we went and renewed our vows in the heart of Chianti in Tuscany in a little hilltop chapel. We did some amazing things, but I also wanted to go back to England on my own visit the village where Jane Austen had lived. And I was really immersing myself in her world. And I knew some people were kind of like, they couldn't quite understand that, I think. But for me, it was just a very minor form. But what I could handle at a very difficult time of re-engaging with life. And that was what I, w- I think would share with people, both through my book, but today as well, is that sometimes it's just baking something new. Sometimes it's taking a bike ride. Sometimes it's talking to someone that you haven't spoken to before. It can be very small things. I think Jane Austen wrote very much in a way about, you know, those visits. Everyone's visiting. (laughs) That's what their life was, going for visits. But it's not just visiting. It's as a community, finding ways to elevate and lift others instead of tearing each other down, which is why I think the picnic scene in Emma just comes out of nowhere like uh, like a lightning bolt when you have one character, Emma, the heroine ostensibly, flat out insulting a very sort of socially helpless individual, Miss Bates, in a way that she gets taken to task for. And it really just jumps out at you that what Jane Austen is saying is that we're not going to act like that. That is not going to be helping any of us. And I think she was very concerned about, I wouldn't say a moral life in terms of necessarily religious life but a life that is productive and helpful to others and then comes back and helps ourselves. Well, and just being caring, kind individuals. Absolutely. Well, I was going to ask you about your research, and you mentioned a little bit about going back and visiting her village, but what all did you do for your research? So like I said, I've always collected and read these books on fandom, and I had a bunch of them on the shelves. And as I was rereading her books in order, I started turning to all these books I collected, then I started buying more and more of them. And when I did the trip, I had a whole week on my own to spend in both the houses at the heart of my book. Chawden House, the very large estate that her brother had inherited through an interesting story all on its own, and the actual cottage that Jane Austen lived in on his estate that would be turned into the museum. And I would be alone sometimes in these very important rooms. And I remember it was a very special time for me. It was kind of like a time where I felt both the weight of the history around me on this, what I would now call a research trip, unintentional, and also the beauty but also learning to coexist at the very same time with the trauma that we were going through as a family. I think I I got renewed vigor and hope from that experience. So six months later, when I sat down to write, I never really looked back, Cindy, on my research. I just started writing these characters. The research was sort of whispering in my ear. And so that was why things kind of came out almost like a Mullinex, like 
food processor or blender. I took a, like a lot of the historical facts, but it kind of came out through my imaginative world looking quite different than it did in reality. And I wanted it to be all very fictional for a reason, because I wanted to let my characters go in whatever directions they wanted to and not feel pinned down by the facts. Oh, sure. And I think that's a fun part of historical fiction. There are many different components. And some people take someone's story and fictionalize it, but use most of their lives. And then other people, I think, take a time period Mm. or an era and write about it. And I I enjoy both equally. And so I thought it was really fun to, to visit these group of people while they're kind of working through their own problems, but also using Jane Austen as a remedy for them. Yeah, I think that the wonderful thing about historical fiction is its breadth. If it's set in the past, it might be historical fiction. If it traces the life of someone who lived and it does it faithfully, it's giving you so much education and knowledge and understanding about a real person. And you can always derive so many important lessons from that. And if like with my book, the people are completely made up, but the events or the sort of key historical facts are real. It's just another way for us as people to explore different things that we might be interested in doing and get inspiration from that type of a tale. Or learn about a new place we want to visit. And now I'm dying to go to Chawton. When we were in London last time, we went to Bath and visited her museum, specifically because I wanted to visit her museum. And it was just fascinating. And they talked a little bit about Chawton and her house and everything there. But now I'm dying to go. Chawton is wonderful. I have been many times. I actually didn't really get inside Chawton House until the trip that inspired this book. And I think the two are very connected. But I've been to Chawton and the Jane Austen's House Museum, her cottage, many, many times. And it really is, Cindy, one of those typical sleepy little British villages, chocolate box perfect, you know, three to 400 people, one pub, one tea room, and a church. (laughs) And then two world-class like museums that have, you know, tour buses. 70,000 tourists a year in buses, you know, right around the corner. But it's, it is, it's a very inspirational, calming place to visit. I, I definitely hope you can get there soon. Well, I know we talked a little bit earlier about Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion being our favorites, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about why they're your favorites or if there are additional ones that are also your favorites. Well, I'd say that Pride and Prejudice is my favorite and Emma and Persuasion are both close seconds, which is half her canon. So at that point, I think I just love them all. But I think Pride and Prejudice is my favorite because it was my first. I was quite young, nine or 10, when I found a copy on my parents' shelves. It was just like a book inside a box. And I remember starting to read it and just being really captured by how I could read it, number one, knowing it was an older book, but also recognizing in Mr. and Mrs. Bennett my parents, all my friends' parents (laughs) in those first few pages. And it just sucked me in right away. So it's like my first love. I love persuasion because I love Anne Elliot. I think she's just a wonderful heroine. I love Captain Wentworth. And she's, you know, 27, 28. And she said no to this guy when she was 19. And she has lived to regret it. And she shows you how you can redirect course and assert yourself to go after what you really want, which is just a really beautiful lesson. I find also as you get into older age, that persuasion becomes, I think, one of those touchstones for living with regret, but also forging on and and trying to redirect course. And Emma, I love because I just find it the ultimate, almost like a mystery book a detective novel. They say, actually, some people call it the first modern detective novel, but it's so full of clues that you could read it over and over again. Every time you read it, you see something new in the mouth or a description of another character and you just go, oh, that's why that happened. And I never noticed that before. And I find that very fun. 
Well, and I feel like you mimicked persuasion a little bit in a, without spoiling anything in a couple <laughs> of the relationships in your book, which was fun to see. Yes, I actually had characters from most age groups. And one thing I knew when I started, well, I knew very little when I started. I knew I was going to call it the Jane Austen Society, and I knew I'd have eight to 10 characters, and I kind of knew some of their jobs. But that was all I knew when I started to type. And of those eight to 10 characters, I wanted it to be evenly split men and women because I wanted to pay homage to the male fandom over the years that I think has maybe gone a little lost in popular culture because of the co opting, I think, by popular culture, the shorthand of the chiclet sort of more romance aspect that people put on our books. And I wanted to explore people at different stages of their life. So as I wrote the book, I was noticing that almost half the characters were in their late 40s. And originally, some of them were well into their 50s. And because of that, I think I was also able to interrogate in her books how her books are resonating with different people at different stages of their life. So I have characters in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. And so that was actually a little purposeful now looking back on it. Well, I agree on Anne Elliott. I just think yeah. that's such a beautiful story yeah. and you just root for her the whole time. And and I just think Jane Austen really built the whole relationship and the suspense and the drama beautifully in that book. Yeah, she did a wonderful job. And I think she was, you know, at the peak of her powers, right? I mean, that is the f- last fully completed manuscript. And I think when she completed it, she was less than a year away from death. Whether she knew how sick she was or not, there is a very sort of elegy feel, autumnal feel to that book. It's a great book to read right now. I usually say start with Pride and Prejudice, but Persuasion is the perfect book for fall. It is the perfect book for fall. Another question that I had for you was related to the knights and that estate. I know that Jane Austen's brother inherited that estate. Did that is that what happened in real life? Yes, and it's interesting. But um, centuries ago, with the landed gentry trying to pass their estates down through the one child, the single eldest heir, and that would usually be male. Although in the Knight family, there were women that had inherited the estate. But what happened was, is that the Knights that adopted Jane Austen's brother were childless, and they needed an heir to pass the estate on to. And they adopted Jane Austen's brother when he was 12. And he eventually would be changing his name to Edward Austen Knight. And that's how he came into all this wealth when Jane Austen and her sister certainly did not. And they were quite dependent on the largesse of their six brothers. And they were all of varying incomes. But Edward through this adoption process, inherited several estates, Garmersham Park in Kent, and this estate, Chawton in Hampshire. And the real life family that continued to pass it down is still with us. And they actually are very involved with the Jane Austen Society in England. And they have sold a 120 year lease to Chawton House on the estate, but ultimately are the owners and the custodians of this very important legacy, both in the town, but then globally. These are difficult things that we don't maybe understand quite as much in North America, the toll it takes on families who inherit these huge British estates that are acres and acres of land and the upkeep of homes that are older than our countries. So you'll have like a 500-year-old home and the upkeep alone is astronomical. So it's quite a burden. And that's something I want to explore in my book. So I completely made up the Knight family, though, after Edward Austin Knight. It will pass through four or five generations of Knights. But Frances and her father, her father being born in 1860, that entire 
storyline from 1860 onwards is completely made up by me. And there's no resemblance at all between the Knight family members that I'm talking about from 1860 onwards and the real life people that are doing such a good job of keeping her legacy alive. I wondered about that, and I figured that's probably what had happened. But yes, I, I can't imagine if you inherited something like that now and trying to keep it up. That probably was brought to the forefront for more Americans with Downton Abbey. You inherit all this land and a house, but there's nothing to run it with. It was interesting because Downton Abbey was actually one of my things I was watching on a loop in my quiet year when we were dealing with my husband's medical challenge. And I remember very much thinking I was just going to write a book about a group of people trying to save an old estate house. And it wasn't until I went to my first Jane Austen conference in Philadelphia for my 50th birthday. I took my daughter along and Whit Stillman, the film director and several other people were talking about persuasion. And wouldn't you know, Cindy, the theme was grief in persuasion. And I came home and I remember my daughter distinctly remembers. I just looked up one day and I went, no, I'm going to write about a group of people trying to save Jane Austen's house. Because in that moment, I think at this conference, I actually diagnosed myself, I believe, with anticipatory grief. I hadn't understood that that was what I was really struggling with. It's not a very common term, although it's more common now, sadly, because of everyone's fears with the pandemic. And all those elements fused, the year of research, the Downton Abbey, also home real estate shows, HGTV, all those things kind of came together in that moment. Well, I'm glad they did. Did you have a say in your cover at all? I think it's beautiful and just perfect for the story. And I was curious if you had a say or if it was presented to you, how all that came about. I was just so happy to have a book deal after trying for decades to get published that I was just like, uh, if they sent it to me and I was happy with it, that was good. I loved this cover when I saw it. But the irony was that I had said to my agent, I only have one request in advance for the cover. And that is that I didn't want to see the back of someone on it because (laughs) as a former independent bookstore owner, as well as a lawyer, I'm very familiar with the different genres and the marketing machine. And I was like, I don't know if that's my book and I don't know if I want that. And then when I sent it through to me and I remember literally Cindy clicking on the PDF and going, oh my God, there's five backs on my covers. I was like, are they trying to kill me? You're like, I said I didn't want a back. Maybe they took me like I didn't want one back, back. but five will be okay. But it was funny because the more I looked at it, the more I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the fact that they are banded together and that they are facing both the, the thing they're trying to save, which is the cottage, but they're also facing the future, this big, beautiful blue sky, those beautiful Rembrandt-esque flowers in the corner that give it this really gorgeous symmetry. And also I get a little emotional saying this, but it's the first and kind of really, except for the audiobook, time that my characters have visually been brought to life for me by somebody. And there's something really wonderful now when I look at them and it's like, see Dr. Gray, Francis, Evie in the middle, and then Adeline, and then Adam. I am very much in love with my cover. I love that. I love that they're linking arms. And I hadn't really thought about that looking to the future, but I like that they were looking at what they were saving. But now I will also think about them looking to the future. And I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? I am. I just finished the first draft of my next book and it's in with my agent. So fingers crossed, I can tell people kind of confidentially that it is going to take place in London, England, about four or five years after Jane Austen Society. It's set in a bookshop as a former indie bookshop owner. 
And I think I believe that you are affiliated with Murder by the Books. Is that right? That is right. I was going to yeah. say because I also work at an indie yeah. bookstore. I love stories. I love that your take place. store. Yeah, no, I love your store. And it's actually going to uh, follow Evie after she graduates from Cambridge. It's my scoop. So don't tell anybody, listeners. I love that. So you'll yeah. have Evie and her story will continue and it'll be in a bookstore. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was so much fun to write. I, I really spent the summer enjoying doing events, supporting the Jane Austen Society and supporting bookstores all over North America. But I was also able to spend the mornings in my writer's shed writing a new story. And um, it was, it just felt pretty calm. It was a really lovely summer for me, despite the fact that we really can't leave our house because of my husband's lung disease. So being able to write during this time was just such a godsend. And just, I feel very lucky. As you were doing all of these online events, did that help at all as you were writing your story, as you kind of interacted with different bookstores and the way they do different things? That's such a great question because I hadn't thought of that, but it definitely did. Because the great thing about an independent bookstore is it's itself. It's not based on anybody else. And it has grown up in accordance with what the consumers and the community want it to be, need it to be. And bookstore owners are so incredibly intertwined and giving to their communities. The one thing I would would hope that everyone could understand and appreciate is how hard, I don't think anyone works harder than an independent bookstore owner. I've been a lawyer, I've been an HR manager, I've been a stay-at-home mom, but being a bookstore owner was the hardest job I ever had. You're just working constantly to stay on top of things that you know your customers will love. And there's so much always coming at you. And very much when I was writing, I wanted to explore how a bookstore distinguishes itself, how it survives, how it might thrive, even in difficult economic times, but also how challenging that is. So that's a great question. I was amazed when I started working at the bookstore, how many books actually come out. I mean, I have read my entire life. I read a lot. So I kind of felt like I had a pretty good handle on it. And then I started there and people would be asking about authors I was not familiar with and we'd get all these books in. So I think you're exactly right to try to stay up with whatever is current, the trends, but also just the sheer volume of titles that are out there and picking and choosing among them has got to be very hard. And I think it's been so much work during the pandemic for all these indie bookstores to try to pivot online and then just keep everything going. I really feel for how they've had to adapt day by day. And I do think that, first of all, it's thousands of books that get released a week. My book was very lucky because it hit the national and international bestseller lists when it was released. And up in Canada, I think it stayed on the bestseller list for over three months for our Canadian fiction bestseller list. And that was purely sending through word of mouth and hand selling by bookstore owners. And these are people who our bookshops didn't really even open until the summer up here. And I am so indebted to bookstore owners across North America who put my book in people's hands over the phone or in a window or in new and creative ways, knowing they weren't going to get the foot traffic. I can only thank them. I just don't know where I'd be otherwise. I'm very grateful. Well, first, that's very exciting. Congratulations. And so well earned because the book is fabulous. But I also second agree, you know, people will talk about buying on Amazon and I'm like, you need to support all these indie bookstores that have the knowledge. And just like you're talking about the hand selling and you just can't beat that. You can't. And you have to say to yourself, well, I'll save $4 on Amazon. But if my bookstore will now do curbside, you know, pick up or home delivery, if it's going to cost, you know, another 4 or $5, that's a cup of coffee. If I do that and I keep that bookstore 
in survival mode through this difficult time. And then we can all celebrate together when we can all go out and about and we can all be in bustling bookstores again. We're going to want those shops to be there. So I just really encourage people to think about what they, I know it's hard for everyone, but whatever they can spare to keep the bookstore going, it's, it's never been more important, I believe. I completely agree. So on that note, that will lead me to my next question. Tell me about some other books you've read recently that you really like that people can pick up at an indie bookstore. So there is a great nonfiction book that I finished and did an event with the author for a library up here in Canada, actually. It's called Saigon. So it's a play on the name from the city in Vietnam. And it's by Phuc Tran. And he is a Latin high school teacher and tattooist in Portland, Maine. And it's the account of immigrating to Carlisle, Pennsylvania when he was two the end of the Vietnam War and his experiences growing up in America. And it is a heartrending, incredibly raw, honest, but funny, wonderful book for anybody, especially like me who grew up in the 80s and 70s. You know, all the pop culture references are in there. I love this book. It just won the New England Independent Booksellers Award for the nonfiction book of the year, Cindy. It's so wonderful. And I also really love an incredible book about living with grief as well by Diane Zinna called The All Night Sun. It was just long listed for the Center for Fiction Novel Prize for 2020. It is a wonderful book about a 28-year-old adjunct professor who has a friendship with a girl, a foreign student from Sweden, and a midsummer that goes very awry. And it's a fantastic book. And then finally, there's a book coming out in October that I would highlight for you, especially for Murder by the Books as well, though it's not got a murder theme, but it is a fantastic book called Kuyahoga. And it's by Pete Beatty. And these are all debut authors. But Cuyahoga is about two rival towns on either side of the river in Ohio. And it takes place sort of in Paul Bunyan times. So well back, first half of the 1800s. And it's, I call it the Coen brothers meets William Faulkner. <laughs> so, Well, Cuyahoga caught my attention because I'm a huge REM fan and they have a song <laughs> entitled that. And so that was the only other time I've ever really heard about the river. And so I saw that and I was like, okay, I need to check that book out. So good. Well, all, all three of those are great recommendations. And I just can't thank you enough, Natalie, for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It's been a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much, Cindy. I had a blast and stay safe and well. And again, thank you so much for all your support of my book. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Natalie's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.